This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, show 369. I've kind of gone through what I call Mobile Home Park 1.0 to now Mobile Home Park 2.0. 1.0 is, you know, you're doing everything yourself. I'm now, and, and for several years, have been at Mobile Home Park 2.0, where I do directly almost nothing with the properties, but I have to now hire and manage and incentivize people. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. What's going on, everyone? This is Brandon Turner, host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, here with a slightly different type of show today with my co hosts. Plural, Mr. David Green and Mr. Ryan Murdoch. Ryan's joining me in the sea shed. David's over there in California. What's up, guys? It's amazing seeing the command post from this side of the screen. Yeah, this is a new perspective for me. Yeah, appreciate you guys letting me tag along today. Yeah, we're uh, we we're, love we're us. It's a treat whenever we get the mercenary in the studio with us. I like it. It was a full house today. It was a full house today. And we brought on Ryan today. Uh, one, because he was like sitting outside my window with like his face pushing at the glass. Puppy dog guy. Because uh, he knew we were going to be talking with Jefferson Lilly today. Yeah. Uh, Jefferson Lilly is a real estate investor who actually got me excited about mobile home parks in the beginning. He was the first one to introduce me to the idea. Uh, then Ryan got excited about it. And we've learned a lot. And we're actually buying a property right now. Actually, a couple of them from Jefferson. So we thought it'd be kind of a cool show to, to bring him in, talk about kind of what we're doing. But this show goes a lot deeper than just mobile home parks. And this fact, we talk a lot about moving what he calls moving from 1.0 to 2.0, which means working in your business to on your business. So whether you're buying your first property or your hundredth property, you're doing a million dollar fund or a $30,000 house hack. It doesn't matter. You're going to learn a lot about uh, how to kind of transition in your investing phase and in your investor cycle to uh, kind of the next level. Very cool stuff today. So stay tuned for all of that. And uh, before we get to that though, let's get to today's Quick tip is super simple. Save the date. This is your official save the date card. No, David Green is not getting married. That, not that we know of. Are you getting married? No, definitely okay. not. So this is the save the, save the date card. <laughs> what I'm talking about is the Bigger Pockets Conference, BPCon 2020. The date is set. We actually have a date for BPCon 2020. It's going to be October 5th and 6th in, Jermall, please. <laughs> New Orleans, Louisiana, right next to Bourbon Street. Uh, one of actually my favorite places I've ever been. I was at another conference there. Actually, I think it's the same hotel this one's at. And it was one of the best conferences I've ever been to. This is going to be even better. So tickets are not yet for sale, though. This is just a tease. I'm like the, I'm like the I don't know, girl or guy at the bar that likes to tease you with a little bit of a, you know, rolling up my sleeve a little bit. <laughs> That's what this is. We'll keep you posted later on early bird pricing. But uh, for now, check out my ankles. <laughs> Is that good? Does that work? Oh, I love it. And if All you right. want to see the rest, you've got to go to New Orleans. There you go. You're going to build valuable relationships, boost your potential, and close more deals at BPCon 2020. And that is our quick tip. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. 
brake kits, LED lights, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. We know, and you all know, why it's super important that good tenant screening is absolutely critical to your management process. Luckily, RentReady, the comprehensive property management software, has a new feature that makes tenant screening a breeze. In addition to TransUnion certified tenant screening, RentReady now offers proof of income verification. RentReady's automatic tenant proof of income verification ensures an in-depth check of each applicant's financial stability. With Plaid certified tenant income and assets reports, you can see a potential tenant's income summary and total earnings by month. All tenant screening and verification is paid by the tenant and done through the desktop and mobile app. It's time to say goodbye to gut check tenant screening and feel confident renting out your property with Rent Ready. And as a matter of fact, all Bigger Pockets pros have Rent Ready included in your pro membership. If you're not a pro, Rent Ready is offering you 50% off of their annual plan. New customers visit rentready.com and use code BP2024. That's R E N T R E D I.com using code BP2024. That's BP, like Bigger Pockets, in the year 2024 to save 50% off of one year of Rent Ready. And now it's time to get in today's show. Anything we got to cover before we bring in Jefferson? I feel like I dominated this intro. I didn't let you guys talk at all. Here, you dominate everything. The uh, dominator. Uh, you watch me on the basketball court. I'll dominate. No, I, I don't even know how to shoot a basketball. <laughs> David texted me the other day and the text just said, I had a dream last night. I was a basketball player. I've been dreaming a lot about basketball lately. It's like, oh, we haven't talked about that. But what's up, David? Are you uh, considering a career change? You want to get into that now? Let's this do is it. like the deep, dark depths of my soul. This is. Not what's a good time on? to get into it now. <laughs> Maybe we'll do a Facebook Live about that or something. Maybe we will. This is awesome, man. All right. Well, without further ado, let's get to the interview with Jefferson Lilly. Jefferson, welcome back to the Bigger Pockets podcast, man. A three-peater. Glad to have you here. <laughs> Third time's a charm. We'll get it right this time, Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> that, that we will. And today we brought in a special guest, of course, Mr. Ryan Murdoch sitting here next to me, uh, along with David Green. And the reason why is because, uh, as we've talked about and probably mentioned in the introduction, we're actually in process, Ryan and I, of buying a couple mobile home parks from you right now, which is yes. funny because you're the one who taught me about mobile home parks like years there ago when you were on the show the first time. Yeah, you were the uh, the impetus. Is that the yeah, word? Impetus? I think so. Okay, impetus. Go that's that. it. Yeah. Have you bought yeah, any, anything things. from any of your other guests? I have uh, any other asset class. Anything? Anything? I don't think so. No. I don't think I've ever bought anything from a guest no, before. So this is the first. So, okay, great. <laughs> uh, anyway, the reason why that's cool and, and the reason why I think that's so neat is because it showcases like that kind of investor life cycle where like when you bought those, you were at a certain phase of your business, you grew them yeah. to a certain point and now you're ready to sell them, move on to something else. So we're going to buy them from here, take them further and someday yeah. we'll sell them and probably sell them to a random other guest or something. You know, like it doesn't mean like what, oh, what wait, I think though. that's important. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I'll call you before we tell them. There you go. That's, that's, that it's so cool. Is Cause like, it's not always a win lose in real estate. It literally can be like, Hey, this benefits you at this point in your career benefits yep. us at this point and it benefits somebody else later on down the road. And so real estate moves yep. in these ebbs and flows. That's uh, kind of a lot of fun. So I like that. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're yeah. happy with it. <laughs> so yeah. I hope you good, are too. Good. Should be, should, yeah, should be great. Uh, you can have me back on for a fourth be. time in another we couple of years. Before, and Peter. You, yes. you can, you can talk about how, how the, how the deals have done and it'll be awesome. Yeah. It's, it's fun. So just, just throw it out to everybody listening. It's like, you don't like, like, 
you can seek win-wins in any kind of real estate thing, especially like yeah. I find, especially when you're dealing with like buying from investors, like different investors have different parts. You know, like we bought that uh, mobile home park from uh, your friend, Ed. Ed yeah. yeah. So Ryan had a friend named Ed. We bought his mobile home park. Ed's great. He's still investing, but at his point he wasn't prepared. He like, he didn't want to do the work that we were willing to do. So instead yeah. he just ended up carrying the contract on it and he'd yeah. make win-win. Yeah, yeah. Win-win. He makes passive income now. And oh, we great. got ourselves our first park like a year and a half ago. So yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. anyway, cool. All right. Well, let's get into this before we talk, like, you know, uh, we can go through mobile home park stuff. We can go through a lot of stuff today, but before we get all that, can you give us a big, uh, I mean, a quick, uh, introduction? Who are you? How did you get into real estate in the beginning? Like what was your very first deal? Yeah. So I got into it. Well, really it was sort of 15 years ago. I think it was 2005. I was just thinking about it. I was working in high tech. Uh, I was on, I think at that point about my second of what would be three different startups. And I was just looking for some passive income. And I thought, you know, hey, I'm a big fan of Warren Buffett. I love value. I want to stay within my circle of competence, whatever that was. But I figured I would buy an apartment building. And, you know, just because that was kind of all I knew, right? I figured I had always lived in a house or an apartment building. Let me buy an apartment building. I'll fix it up. Maybe some new kitchens, new roof, make it better for the tenants, make it better for me. And then just in going online, like at LoopNet, I kept looking for apartment, well, multifamily, and there'd be these, you know, one in a hundred mobile home park things. And I'd just say like, that's absurd. I'm not buying a friggin' mobile home park. And I delete the search result and, you know, <laughs> look again and again, Peoria, Illinois, Lubbock, Texas, Ames, Iowa, you know, these things kept popping up that were priced better. Um, Anyway, so I got hit over the head several times, but then finally just decided to, to look into it. Uh, so I had my, my day job at, at that time. I never uh, at any point was so taken with mobile home parks that I just said, hey, I'm giving up all the sexy Silicon Valley stock options and I'm going to go do parks. Um, but, but I ended up, it then took about a year and a half from when I started getting educated about parks. Uh, I took it, uh, just uh, 17 months, I think, until I closed on my first deal. Um, but even then, I still had my day job, which I think is a great way to transition into real estate the income from that first property wouldn't at that point quite have really been enough to support me, but it was a significant, a significant chunk of passive income. Um, anyway, so that uh, then eventually, so I'd moved on to a third startup and, and I could see after about a year that that third startup wasn't doing real well, but my mobile home park was doing reasonably well and I was putting virtually no time or money into it. So uh, at that point I, I had the confidence and left the day job, as it were, and got into real estate, uh, and then invested some more money in that property, built it up, improved the cash flow further, uh, ended up buying a second park. And uh, here I am 12 years later, I think I'm now up to uh, 30 parks and uh, we've got one more under contract and a second hope under contract this Friday. So we'll, we'll see how quickly I can get to 32. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Can can you walk people through real quick? And I know we covered this in the first episode that we did with you back on episode. I don't remember. Oh, 262. 111. Oh, 262. oh no, 111. Was the first You're right. 111 <laughs> and then 262. So 111, we could really cover it as like why uh, mobile home parks. Can we give you a quick just under, like what appealed to you about that besides them just being cheaper and, and popping up on LoopNet? Yeah. So part of it was price, but then really at least as much was just kind of structurally why this is such a, a compelling niche, which I'm sure you, you've now found getting into it yourself, Brandon, but a couple quick things. So first the supply curve is actually shrinking. It's effectively illegal to build any new mobile home parks, zoning laws, density, other things have been changed. So even if it's 
not literally illegal in your city or county. It's almost certainly not economically feasible. And then about, so the supply curve right there would be fixed, but about 1% of these get plowed under every year and become redeveloped into some higher and better use. So the supply curve is actually King, I, my estimate is about 1% a year. Uh, demand continues at 1% a year just as population grows. Same, same demand for apartments and you know, multi-million dollar houses and in general grows about 1%. The interesting thing about this business shrinking though is when say 1% of the mobile home parks get redeveloped every year, those mobile homes have to go somewhere and they're infilling the remaining mobile home parks. So the fact that the supply curve is shrinking actually creates its own roughly 1% demand. Plus, just as population grows, there's another 1% uh, demand growth. So it's probably about a 3% supply demand imbalance between, uh, again, growing demand about 2% a year, shrinking supply about 1%. The other interesting thing I think about shrinking supply and, and just that you can't build these anymore is that, frankly, what gets a lot of real estate is get over leveraged, they get into a property, and then 10 more developers come and, you know, open self-storage units or apartments or build yeah. office towers all within one mile of the property. So in the boom times, in virtually every other kind of real estate, you get overbuilding and you can get then, frankly, a lot of people going bankrupt because of excessive price uh, uh, competition. So that doesn't happen here because there is there is no overbuilding. So it's just a very, very stable business. And then secondly, I'll just mention again, most of our tenants own those mobile homes. So all those things that cause all of us landlords headaches, which usually are the proverbial leaky toilets and leaky roofs, uh, almost all of those uh, maintenance responsibilities are on the tenants because the tenants own almost all the homes. So you have reduced repair and maintenance expenses. Plus, again, you, you actually have a more responsible tenant base than your typical apartment renter. The, these folks don't live in a house as nice as, as you and I do, but they do own that home. They do have, by and large, they do have an ownership mentality rather than a renter's mentality. So you've got really a, a better quality tenant base, lower repair and maintenance expenses, and a fairly favorable, you know, competitive dynamic with your competition slowly but surely going away. There, we just summarized yeah. episode 111. There it <laughs> is. There <we> Done. <laughs> Let me ask you, Jefferson, a lot of our listeners are newer investors and they're trying to figure out which niche would be right for them. Can you share a little bit of in your experience of working in mobile home parks, what type of person or what type of mindset tends to gravitate towards this and do better? That's an interesting question. So I've never worked in any other real estate niche. So it's hard to do a comparison and say, hey, you know, this is so different than self-storage or office or what have you. My general sense is, again, this is not sexy. So, you know, folks that tend to, to, to like to be able to about owning a, a sexy gleaming office tower or brand new hotel or, or what have you, this wouldn't be the thing for them. What's sexy about this business is the cash flow. It's not the properties. <laughs> Let's be frank. There, there are very few sexy looking mobile home parks. Somebody who's comfortable, I think, thinking outside the box and uh, again, not afraid to roll up their sleeves. And we can talk a little bit about, about this, but I, I've kind of gone through mobile, what I call mobile home park 1.0 to now mobile home park 2.0. 
2.0. Uh, 1.0 is, you know, you're doing everything yourself. You're scheduling the plumber. You're answering the tenant calls. You're putting the ads up on Facebook and Craigslist for your property. I'm now and, and for several years have been at Mobile Home Park 2.0, where I do directly almost nothing with the properties, but I have to now hire and manage and incentivize people and have systems in place so that people who work for me do all that. And that's uh, uh, a fairly big leap <laughs> going yeah. from, from managing properties, managing people. In a way, it's almost like being in a separate business. I'd say it's a big leap going from having no uh, rental properties at all to buying a mobile home park. I mean, that, that's, yeah. that's a big step. Is, you know, a lot of people are going with a single family home or a duplex or a small multifamily that's close to them. You went from, from no rental properties to a mobile home park. And I don't know the yep. size or the distance away from you, but how did, how did, what, what did that look like and what, what kind of systems did you have to build out and what kind of mistakes and, and things did you learn from that? So I made pretty much every mistake in the book. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, I bought a park with a sewage lagoon and well water. Good times. But, the, but that's the bad news. The good news is it's all up and to the right from there. It doesn't, it doesn't get any uglier than that. But yeah, so I, you know, I got started doing everything myself. Well, first off, I got educated. So you know, I started reading books. I built up an unofficial advisory board of about 10 guys that were already in the business. And so I was you know, bouncing deals off and they would give me a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Uh, I, I did attend uh, the Mobile Home Park Boot Camp. The original founders, not but the original founders were um, uh, two two other guys, uh, uh, Steve and Corey. Um, anyway, so so I you know I, I got educated that way uh, and just started meeting other park owners and again reading all the material that I could. And there's a lot more of it out there now. But I got as educated as I could. I, I bounced deals off folks and, and finally found one that seemed to pencil out and, and that my advisors thought was decent. Again, in retrospect, I would not advise buying a, a park on private utilities, uh, at least not for your first park. But anyway, that, that's what I cut my teeth on. And so I was traveling out to the park. It's in, it's in Oklahoma City. I'm here in San Francisco. That's obviously 12, 1,500 miles away. So I had an on-site manager. I was also traveling out there and living on site one out of about every three weeks uh, as I was bringing in houses. I was my own general contractor. I would uh, bring an air mattress and, you know, my toothbrush and some breakfast cereal and milk for the fridge, provided the house, again, was hooked up to electricity and had running water. I, I would sleep in the park for about one week out of every three. I did that for a couple of waves, but it was a total of about a, a year uh, that I was effectively living site one third time and just being my own contractor, wow. general, general contractor getting the plumber to do this and getting the guy to grade the roads and getting the painter to paint and overseeing all that. And then I come back to San Francisco and make more phone calls and find more houses to buy. I, I was buying mobile homes and bringing them in, infilling some vacant pads and obviously improving my cash flow. So anyway, that's kind of how I got into it. I didn't even, you know, I got started just doing my own QuickBooks. You know, we, we've now evolved to manager. Uh, we now have someone else who posts ads uh, we have someone else who d does that sort of general contracting asset management work. Uh, but again, I'm operating at, at a much larger scale than that first park. It was only about 66 pads and it was only about two thirds full when I bought it anyway. So that's kind of how, oh, how yeah. I got, how I got into it uh, again, starting with the day job. So most of that live on site was really in the second year. The first year I wasn't doing too much. I was still working the day job and just kind of seeing how things went. 
with, with the park but before uh, making that switch to, to, to doing it full time. So I, there's a couple of things I want to I want to dig into here because this is cool. First of all, you mentioned actually let me go here first. That going from like w- version 1.0 to 2.0, I think that yeah. like that is a theme that applies across the board. Whether you're buying totally. mobile home parks, single family houses, duplex, whatever. That I work in the business to working on the business. Can we talk that transition yeah. for a little bit? So how did you? First of all, like, why did you make that shift? And then what's the beginning? How does somebody who's listening to the show right now, I mean, there's people listening to the show right now who have headphones in, they're at their rental property right now. They just got finished yelling at a contractor and now they're painting a wall. Like right now as they listen to this and they're laughing now because I'm calling them out. Like, and I did this for a decade. So like, and I'm not, I'm not all the way over it sometimes. How do you go from that to, I don't even deal mostly with the day-to-day of the properties. I got people that handle all that. Like what's that transition look like? Yeah. So I wish I had done it faster. Uh, you know, that's kind of one, one of my greatest regrets is I just, I'm doing the right things. It's just taken me too long to get where I am and I just should have done things faster. But, you know, it started off, I think in about month four or five of operating that first mobile home park when I, I said, okay, I really hate putting numbers into QuickBooks. And I went, I think on Craigslist and found somebody to, to do my, my QuickBooks. I still wasn't at the level of rent manager or, or that sort of real multifamily accounting system. But uh, so that again was somewhere around four or five months into my first deal. I outsourced the accounting. I think probably within that first year, I also found somebody to be putting up uh, to be putting up ads uh, like on Craigslist back then more than Facebook. But I mean, so I outsourced kind of pieces of it. And then frankly, hiring somebody else to be an asset manager, really sort of a, a general contractor and super property manager, a manager of the managers. That didn't happen until about five years ago when I started raising outside capital and really started growing. And so at that point, we hired somebody from within the business, I think off indeed.com. But but we found somebody that had been trained and had spent almost, I think almost a decade working for some of the largest mobile home park operators. And so we, we hired her to come work for us. Now with my new fund, I've done basically the same thing. I hired a guy who, who again has some fairly deep multifamily and actually self-storage experience to come work for me. It's easier, you know, those are six figure heads. It's not like you're getting somebody at minimum wage to, to really drive your properties towards full potential. But with a fund, you know, we're, we're now, uh, this fund is a little, right around 15 million. Cumulatively, I've raised about 35 million. It's not that money's no object, but when you have that level of, of funding, you, you frankly, you can afford and you have to afford uh, to start bringing in uh, quote unquote real help to help grow the properties. So anyway, it, it was a pressure. I like this, the definition of 1.0. 1.0 is doing it and 2.0 is managing others and providing others opportunity to do it. You know, That's pretty much and it. Brandon was, Brandon was kind of laughing at me because this is my life right now. I'd say 80% of our talks are just, I can't do this. This is hard. <laughs> you know, it's hard enough to learn how to be really good at something, but it's 10 times harder when you're trying to get someone else to do it to your standard in your way. So I think, yep. I mean, if you're, if you're at that point trying to make this transition, I know these listeners 100% are relating. They're just on the edge of their seat yep. to hear this. And if you're not there yet, you're going to get there. So this is good stuff for you to start hearing to prepare for. And this is exactly the, the problem that I'm having is you'll, I, I either get newbies who come and they say, Hey, I want to work for you and learn everything there is to learn, which is great. 
but it doesn't necessarily help you in your position where you're managing a fund and your investors are expecting a performance. And and what you've done is what I've heard you say is I found people that had experience and, and you're willing to pay. But I think what I'd like to know is can you walk us through the process of what they said that made you stand out and recognize, oh, this person could be good what you were looking for, how you knew this is the guy I'm willing to pay six figures for, the gal, as opposed to giving someone a chance and seeing how it goes? Yeah. So for us, it was uh, basically just hiring and really only interviewing people that had already been in the business and then just you know figuring out uh, a little bit about cultural fit and a little bit about still the experience level. So there's some people, for instance, that are asset managers in this business that really have never done anything other than sit in front of a spreadsheet. So, you know, we'd ask questions like, how many mobile home parks have you actually visited for your company? And sometimes we'd hear like, oh, yeah, last year, my manager took me out for one day and we looked at one of the properties close to headquarters, mm. you know? So I was like, so what do you do with your time? Well, you know, I'm, I'm analyzing the, the variances, the rental variances, the utility collections. So for us, that's valuable, but that's not going to be a full-time job for a still relatively small fund like ours, the big equity lifestyle and yes, communities and other big publicly traded REITs with hundreds of properties can afford to have somebody that's really an, a financial analyst, even though their title is asset manager. So we weeded out those people. And then you'll have some asset managers that, again, uh, don't, um, they're a little bit more like a cheerleader. They're like running programs and, and trying to get all the managers to clean up their communities or get the most number of outside move-ins, that kind of thing. But they still haven't necessarily like hired, trained, fired a manager, hired a subsequent manager, or changed a compensation plan for a manager. I call those kind of folk coaches. So what we need, being relatively small, need that coach asset manager, somebody that's gotten traction, hired, fired managers, changed compensation plans, that kind of thing. We don't need a cheerleader who's, you know, sending out emails saying, hey, $500 bonus for, you know, whoever has the most outside move-ins. We need more than that. Some of that, but more than that. And again, we're not yet at the level of needing anybody at least full-time to do financial analysis. We will likely be hiring somebody to to do that here in Q1 of this year, uh, part-time. Anyway, so uh, so we're really looking for, for folks that have that sort of coach mentality that can change the players on the field. They've done that already. Uh, frankly, that means we're taking less of a chance, you know, less of a see how, you know, see how it works out. Presumably, we're hiring somebody that, that's actually done all that, proven they can do it, and they just come right in and, and, and hit the ground running with us. You know, I, I struggle a lot when I'm hiring because I, you know, I'm, I'm, what I'm trying to do the last year to put it in the terms you described today, which I like is I'm trying to build a 2.0 business from the ground up, which is hard because most people start with the 1.0 and then they build in, but I'm like, okay, well, what do I need to have 2.0 from right now? So I hired like four people right off the bat and yeah. brought in a bunch of partners. Like Ryan here is one of them and we're, we're building this thing, but here's what I struggle with in doing this. Do I hire for heart and for passion and for culture fit? And they're just great, but they have no experience in mobile home parks at all, but they're just like, yeah. they're perfect for like, I love them on the team. Or do I hire for, they, they've been working in mobile home parks for 20 years. They get this, they, they can teach me how to run things. Like, and I've, I've, I struggle with that at bigger pockets when we're hiring people at bigger pockets. Do you hire yeah. for experience more or culture fit more and let them learn the skills or you hire for skill and let them learn the culture? 
more the latter, more hiring for skills. Okay. Culture is certainly important. Uh, and like what you guys are doing at Bigger Pockets, you've got, I don't know how many dozens and dozens of employees now. Are you over yeah, 100? I think 30 something. I think we're like 30 something. 30 something. And uh, you're, like all kind of, yeah. you're all kind of in an office there in Denver. Right. Yeah. All Everybody under one me roof. And a couple others. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We can, we can stay in Hawaii. It's pretty fun. They, I they know you me, were on the beach in surf. Hawaii working yeah, hard. So it's not bad. Yeah, working. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, Brandon, the owner, is working yes. in Hawaii. Working hard. On his tan. Yes. No, yeah. sorry. Working on the collections yeah. issue. <laughs> That's what he's working I'm, on. I'm, I'm here just to keep him on track. <laughs> yeah, I let Ryan do the work in the back. He works. <laughs> yes. yes, there we go. But no, so, you know, my organization, for better or for worse, is fairly remote speak. I'm here in San Francisco. Frankly, I'm kind of like the or one of the few guys in San Francisco that knows anything about mobile home parks. You know, if this were, if, if this were all software and social networking yeah. and chip design, I would have a deep bench of folks to hire. So I don't. Um, but I like living here. Coincidentally, though, our business, the mobile home park business, has really always sort of been tri-headquartered. The big companies have always been in Denver, where you are, in Detroit, or in Chicago. So my asset manager is from, from Denver, and he, he lives and works there. And I anticipate, as and then, of course, our, our managers are all on site, wherever the properties are, which is now uh, South Dakota, Nebraska, Texas, and Idaho in my new fund. Uh, and then we're in about 12 other states with my previous funds. But anyway, so uh, for better or for worse, frankly, I think we've had less of a culture simply because we're all remote uh, than when yeah. you have a whole company and a, and a literal and figurative water cooler to gather around. You know, we've never had a company meeting where absolutely everybody that works for me has been together under the same roof at one time. That would mean flying in all the managers from Wyoming and from Wisconsin and from New York State and whatnot. So anyway, so, uh, you know, I certainly want to build a culture of accountability and I want people to have fun. But at the same time, when everybody's working remotely, at least for me at this stage, uh, uh, I'm more about hiring for uh, somebody who can actually deliver results rather than somebody who's uh, specifically a cultural fit. And then I've got to train them on how to do what they need to do. Hey, do you offer any equity in your deals or in your fund or GP for, for your asset managers or your, like your people, or are you a sole owner basically? Uh, like how do you structure incentives? I guess is what I'm curious about. Yeah. So, uh, so no, there isn't equity, uh, that gets a little sticky. It's not an impossibility, but uh, so, so what we do is we do allow folks to, to actually write a check and invest in our fund if they choose to. Folks that are employees and folks that are employees of a company don't have to be accredited to invest. If they're a full-time employee, really? regardless of what their net worth is, they can invest. Yeah. So we're a 506C <laughs> uh, fund. And so Park Avenue can only take uh, accredited investors as far as the, the, the true pure investors all have to be accredited. But again, yeah, our, our own employees can invest if they choose. Anyway, so, uh, but we do pay, you know, we pay out bonuses that is mostly geared around occupancy. What drives our, basically they're very, very simplistically, they're, they're two things that, that drive our profitability. It's bumping rents, and it's then get, getting homes occupied, getting lots occupied, be it either through yeah. renovating a house that's already there or buying, say, a new house from a factory and trucking it in. 
Um, frankly, we don't need an asset manager to just put out a notice that says, hey, your lot rent has gone from 295 to 315. So we don't compensate our people based on, uh, based on rents. Uh, we do based on occupancy. Every house that comes in between our manager, uh, our on-site manager and our asset manager, we're paying out a low four-figure bonus for every house that, that comes in. Right now, again, we're, we're growing, but so far we've got, call it 110 vacant pads. So that's not going to get filled across our portfolio across six properties. Sure. Um, and we're about to close, well, uh, I think in about another six weeks, we're about to close on a property that's quite large, but has approximately 100 vacancies. Anyway, so that'll be say 200 vacancies at, at, a, at a couple thousand in bonus. That's potentially three to four hundred thousand dollars of bonus to pay out within my organization. That that's not going to happen in one year. I mean, if it did, that'd be great. I'd happily pay it. But realistically, yeah. that's going to be <laughs> spread out across probably a four or five year infill process. And I'm sure we'll buy additional properties and have additional opportunities opportunities for our employees to earn money. But the real heavy lifting, you know, getting a crew to actually actually renovate that house and get yeah. the mover to move in a new house. Did he level it? Oh, he got to call the mover back to re-level the house and submit the invoice because it cracked in the back bedroom and it was 300 bucks to get the, the roof crack fixed when the mover moved it. And then, and then you got to advertise it and get people to come in and, you know, there's uh, there's a fair amount of heavy lifting with the business. I think still less than apartments, but there's certainly certainly upfront at the infill. There, there's a fair amount of heavy lifting in this business if you've got properties with vacant pads. So um, again, we we pay out significant bonuses to uh, uh, to managers that can do that. We also promote managers. We've had. Uh, two uh, particularly good managers, including the one there at the property you're buying from us, whom we've promoted to be a regional manager. So we give them some additional pay and additional responsibility to help us in turn manage other managers. Mm. So getting that sort of upward career trajectory for folks also helps compensate them. You know, they get compensated on, on infilling others as well, but they also just get the psychic benefit then uh, of being promoted, of managing then other people, they get that experience. That's anyway, cool. So, so that's a, that's another thing we've, we've done for some of our best managers. That's cool. One of my, one of my buddies is uh, AJ Osborne. He was on the podcast a while back, but he's one of the larger self-storage operators in the U.S. Him and his family own a ton of uh, self-storage, but he mentioned to me that his entire leadership team of his company, he's got a large company, lots of employees, his entire like VP team or like leadership team, they all came from like ground level at their company. Like one guy was like the maintenance guy at a random storage unit. And like over the, yeah, over the last 10 years or whatever, they've just like certain people have proven themselves and they promote from within and they give people opportunity to excel. And I, I just, when I heard that, I was like, I love that idea. So it's very cool to hear you doing the same thing is yeah. promoting from within to encourage, uh, to encourage growth and, and growth mindset between right. uh, with employees. That's cool. Yeah. Very yeah. smart. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my 9-to-5 job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course... 
we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my nine-to-five job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We know, and you all know, why it's super important that good tenant screening is absolutely critical to your management process. Luckily, RentReady, the comprehensive property management software, has a new feature that makes tenant screening a breeze. In addition to TransUnion certified tenant screening, RentReady now offers proof of income verification. RentReady's automatic tenant proof of income verification ensures an in-depth check of each applicant's financial stability. With Plaid certified tenant income and assets reports, you can see a potential tenant's income summary and total earnings by month. All tenant screening and verification is paid by the tenant and done through the desktop and mobile app. It's time to say goodbye to gut check tenant screening and feel confident renting out your property with Rent Ready. And as a matter of fact, all Bigger Pockets pros have Rent Ready included in your pro membership. If you're not a pro, Rent Ready is offering you 50% off of their annual plan. New customers visit rentready.com and use code BP2024. That's R E N T R E D I.com using code BP2024. That's VP, like Bigger Pockets, in the year 2024 to save 50% off of one year of Rent Ready. Calling all property owners and operators. Are you managing a multifamily property and looking to elevate your residents' living experience? Introducing Quantum Fiber Internet, your go-to choice for speedy internet your residents will love. The process is as seamless as Quantum Fiber service. Starting at just $50 a month, your residents can enjoy fast, reliable internet that will make them love where they live even more. Connect with your local fiber representative today. Learn more at q.com slash go big. I wonder how they got that domain. That's q.com slash go big. Limited availability. Service and rate in select locations only. Taxes and fees apply. 360 Wi-Fi and other equipment lease charges, taxes, and fees are excluded from price for life offer and may be increased. Can we, you mentioned the, the fund, you know, you have a fund. Can you go through the difference real quick, real quick between a fund and a syndication? And I know I'm hogging all the questions here today from uh, Ryan and, and David here, but uh, like yeah. why fund, what's the difference and why did you choose a fund? Yeah. So uh, I think what you mean by syndication is when you raise money just for single deal. And we call that deal by deal. Yes, that's syndication. Okay. I still consider raising money in a fund syndication. Fundamentally, okay, a syndicator yeah, sure. is yep. anybody that raises money from others to buy real estate or other assets and, you know, split, split the profits. We like the, the, the fund model really is, is kind of the, for an investor, the, the, the difference be, between a sort of traditional one property syndication and what we do is the difference between buying a stock and buying a mutual fund. Mm -hmm. uh, so we are a, a focused, if you will, mutual fund. We only buy mobile home parks. But the advantage then for our investors is that they get uh, geographic diversification and, and deal diversification. For instance, if you do a traditional syndication, you invest in one property and heaven forbid something goes wrong, you could get hit with a capital call. Like, hey, we just need to come up with another quarter million bucks to fix the sewage system and you're 
20%. And so you got to write a $50,000 check, you know, to, to, to help fix that yeah. property. Again, we've got a fund. It's uh, our first fund here in the new partnerships, about 15 million. We may well, we'll certainly keep, I would guess about 5% of that, of that in cash, 750,000. Uh, we may go upwards of 10%. That would be a million and a half. So I can't guarantee that we would never do a, a capital call, but it's highly unlikely when you're in a fund and again, they're liquid reserves. Uh, plus I'd say within a year, you know, the, the fund might well be cash flowing a million and a half or more a year, you know, call it a hundred some odd thousand a month. When you operate at that, that level of scale and something's bad and you've got a quarter million dollar whoopsie, it's just a lot easier to cover that, take some cash off the balance sheet or just earn out that money unless it's an, you know, absolute emergency, uh, you know, just earn it out over two or three months. There's your quarter million bucks, maybe suspend a dividend for a quarter, but which we've not had to do, but you could, you know, and, and then just take care of it that way. And our investors get a lot more diversification and a greatly reduced risk that, that we would ever have to go back to them for a capital call. And then frankly, we, we, as we, as a fund, the advantage for me is, you know, I just closed so far again, so far, I bought six properties this year. They've all been at reasonable prices for cash, quick closings. So we don't write offers that say, Hey, you know, if after 45 days, we don't have financing, but we have a letter from a bank, you know, we get an automatic 30 day extension, blah, blah, blah. Uh, our offers generally aren't that way. It's just, Hey, you know, we've got 10 million bucks in the bank, your property costs two and three quarters. We can do this all cash and we can close in, you know, 30 or 45 days. Let's just make sure you're, you know, make sure you're committing any fraud. Let's make sure the rent is there. We'll do a phase one, make sure the property is clean, but we'll just then wire over the money out of our fund. We don't need to deal with the bank. So uh, uh, the, the, um, the first four properties we bought as a portfolio back in June, we just closed on some CMBS financing last month borrowing out about five and a quarter million against what was a seven and a quarter million dollar acquisition. But we had plenty of cash in the bank. We didn't need the money until about uh, last month, December. So now we've got an extra five million in the bank. We're, we've already got our next acquisition lined up. That'll probably use up about the, uh, about three million of that. Uh, anyway, so that, that's the advantage for a fund is you can usually get better pricing rather than having to scramble. Our first deal almost fell apart because we had a big investor drop out. But, but again, as a fund, we don't have to scramble. We've just got the cash in the bank and we will just close quickly at a little better price. Yeah. Do you find it more challenging to raise money to sit in your fund if you don't have deals lined up to deploy that capital with? Or uh, how, how, what does that look like? Do you get pushed back from investors? That like, you know, you're going to sit on my money for X amount of months or... Very little. Uh, frankly, what tends to happen is investors that think that way tend to sit on the sidelines until I've bought a deal or two. Yeah. You know, our fundraising over this last year kind of grew exponentially and we had almost in the last month prior to closing. So, you know, some investors will join, uh, you know, get on the train very late after they already see the fund has, has made a number of good acquisitions. So be it. But anyway, but it hasn't seemed to be a, a major problem. Uh, there's a fair amount of interest in space and uh, yeah. uh, we've got a pretty good track record. We're, we're very aligned with investor interests. Uh, we don't take fees. We're just a straight up split of profits. That's very different. So perfect fund, but, but there's certainly some 
telling things uh, uh, about our fund. And we've had a hundred some odd folks uh, write us checks. So, Can you walk me through what the process is like to go from buying your first park to running a fund? Yeah. So we, we ended up doing three deal by deals in 2014 and then in 2015 graduated uh, to the fund structure. Uh, so it was some of the same investors and it was very similar legal paperwork. And we used the same attorney that, that had advised us on our individual syndications as on the fund. So in, in that respect, from, from a process standpoint, the paperwork, what have you, it was really quite similar. What we did start doing roughly at that time was I came on the Bigger Pockets podcast uh, and then started my own podcast, which is the mobile home park industry's first podcast simply called Mobile Home Park Investors. So that started getting us uh, improving our marketing. So then we started getting much more traction, more, more interest once we were podcasting more. So the marketing probably changed more from syndi- individual syndications to fund syndications. The marketing changed more than, uh, than anything else. Yeah, it, it is interesting how podcasting, I mean, like, podcasting and things like social media. It's like, it's all like new world stuff. Like the old school guys would never even consider podcasting to raise money. Yeah. Like, right. I mean, like I, for the last fund that we did that we close, like we, you know, we raised all the money for it. I think we raised what was it? 4 million bucks, something yeah, like that. Five, yeah. yeah. We almost five. Like I, I literally put out a thing on Instagram and it was like, not even a post. It was like in the comments on Instagram. I said, Hey, got a new 506 C fund. If you're interested, link in the bio. And like, we filled that thing. I mean, we had, I don't wow. know. We, I think Good. we have a thousand people on our list right now of accredited and Investors, and we're just like, just out of that. Yeah, crazy, like yeah. crazy what social media can do. So I would just encourage people listening to this, even if you're not right now raising money, it would not be a bad idea to start developing your your presence on social media as, as an expert or as somebody who's who's trustworthy because social media builds trust and credibility in a way that that previous generations would never even imagine. And it's just hard yeah. to believe. Yep. Yeah, huge. Hey, hey, Jefferson. So you're raising money that way. I'm wondering, let's, let's talk about finding deals real quick because you have a lot of deals, a lot more than we've got, definitely. How are you finding them? I mean, how are you staying competitive? I mean, I'm assuming you're working through brokers, but are you doing also off-market stuff? And then how are you staying competitive against those big REITs that can take a you know 3% return and everyone's happy? Yeah, so as far as sourcing, uh, that's changed a fair amount now for me and in, in my new Park Avenue Partners Fund. So, so far, those six deals this, and the seventh we have under contract are all off market. There's no broker involved. They, they were never up on LoopNet or mobile home park store or any of the, any website. So we've, we've built a network now of, of some folks uh, uh, that, that basically just do the heavy lifting for us of, of phone calling, mailing letters, uh, driving through parks, you know, just literally knock on a door, <laughs> see if you can find out who yeah. the owner is. That's cool network of folks. Those aren't, you know, six figure head employees. Those are people that work on basis. Several of them are made. Uh, it's just not, uh, not a base salary. It's just, you know, Hey, you brought in a good deal. We'll, we'll pay you a nice commission on it. Um, and, you know, and frankly, having the podcast and uh, having, uh, the website that we do, you know, we, we do get some people that, that just send in a lead. So that's great as well. They, they know we buy mobile home parks and they'll just reach out and let us know. It might be the only time we hear from that person. Cause it's just like, Hey, my uncle is, has got health concerns and he needs to sell his park. Uh, but yeah. you know, we're, we're, we're happy for those one-off leads. And then again, we've got a solid handful of folks working for us that are just working the phones. And I'm sure in this new fund, we will 
eventually buy from a broker. You know, we, we bought a lot from, from brokers, probably two thirds or three quarters of the deals in my previous funds came from brokers. Again, those deals tend to be priced a little more highly, a little more richly now. So we're, we're, we're making a, a very concerted effort to source deals in a proprietary and off-market way. But there is no panacea. There is no single thing to to do that that's guaranteed. We kind of do a little bit of everything, brokers and sourcing. And, you know, sometimes we see things posted like, you know, on Craigslist or something. You know, you, you never know. Yeah. You, you never know where, where you're going to see a deal. So. Yeah. Super oh, cool. and then as far as comp- competing, you asked also about competing with the REITs. So we, we tend to buy deals. Our average deal size has been about two and a half million. And that's still, fortunately, relatively below the radar screen of most of the big REITs. They're looking for five and certainly $10 million deals. Yeah, I, I hear that advice all the time. When you're trying to avoid the big dogs and whatever thing you're in, you just got to go smaller. Yeah. And you can go smaller because you're usually running a leaner operation than what they are. Yeah. You know, I find yeah. that when you're competing with people that are doing things at a big level, they just do not have the ability to do the level of diligence that a smaller person can do, right? Like if you're buying 50 homes a month, you cannot look at every single house and make sure that it doesn't need a lot of work, right? So you're going to just take on losses and you understand that's a part of your business model to be that big, you know? And when you're small, you can, and you're leaner, you're quicker. You, you, it's like this analogy of you're this jet ski that can zip in, look at a deal and zip out where your, your competition's a battleship. It's going to take them four yeah. days just to get completely turned around. Yeah. I'd like to know in your Jefferson, how have you divvied up the responsibilities that go into this? You've got analyzing deals, looking for deals, purchasing deals, managing deals, doing rehabs. Can you share the different roles that you have within the organization and how you're structured? Yes. So again, we, we've got a handful of folks that, that are that are sourcing deals. We've got then our VP of operations who still does, I'm guessing, 15 or 20 percent of his time on acquisitions. So he's mm-hmm. sort of 80 percent actually managing the managers, but he that's obviously property level stuff, but he does still help out some with the acquisitions level. We've got a, you know, sort of an internal model that basically cranks out a number. It, 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 it ranks and it's, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not scientific. It's not pure science. We're still going to do other diligence, but just having a fairly simple model to just put in some, some numbers. What's the price? What's the location? What are the lot rents? You know, how strong is the economy? Just to have it kick out a number also helps us just filter through which deals we want to pursue. But then frankly, a lot of the analysis still comes to me. Uh, Again, we may and probably should have already hired <laughs> hired that out. Uh, but but for the deals that we're actually pursuing, I'll do a simple financial model and put together some some budgets as well on that. So that that's kind of how the deal is is processed. And then once it's uh, and then I'm closing it and, and uh, with you know help from attorneys. None of those mm-hmm. folks are on staff; those are all outside firms. And then it does get turned over uh, to my VP of operations to actually operate it and deal with, with the CapEx and fix the roads and get the three mobile homes fixed and get four new ones and on and on. We'll, we'll work out that plan. That's part of the budget. We'll work that out for each property. And then again, it's his responsibility to execute against that and get, get the property cash flowing better. So you've got someone who loads up your pipeline. That's your VP of operations. You've got Uh you that analyzes it, decides to pull the trigger and then sees it through to close. That'd be like the filter of the funnel that gets it through. And then once it's done, you turn it over to another member who manages the asset. Are there any other positions in there? It's back to that asset manager. 
Yeah. Oh, so you're running it really lean. You've got the same person who's like loading you up with deals. And then once you get in there and close it, they take over again. Yes. He, he principally runs the deals, but he also helps do some, some of the, the analysis. So that, so his job basically ha- has evolved. Uh, I hired him again, trying not to re- repeat every single one of my previous mistakes. You know, I have hired in largely ahead of the curve uh, w- with my new fund. So for instance, I brought him on before we did even our first deal. So he was initially 100% acquisitions, screening through things. Uh, and his job has now shifted to be 80% operations, which is his background. Uh, but yeah, just being a smaller fund, you know, I wasn't in a position to hire on a six-figure head just to look at and screen deals. Anyway, so that's kind of the that's the way I've, I've managed things so far. We'll see as we continue to grow. We, we may well bring on somebody full-time to help screen and mm-hmm. source. We'll see. And how about you, uh, Brandon and Ryan? How are you guys structured? So we have, so yeah, I was, uh, like I said earlier, I was, I was trying to build from the ground up this like ahead of the curve thing. So, or this uh, 2.0, I will preface it with this. I like, I'm making this up as I go. So I didn't actually build this off anybody else's model really other than bigger pockets. But I looked at it and said, okay, what would I need if I was going to own uh, a thousand pads, maybe a, a dozen parks or, you know, seven to 10 parks, maybe you call that. What would I want to have? And so I said, okay, well, I'd probably want somebody in charge of acquisitions. So I found somebody, everybody, everybody here came from within bigger pockets, uh, meaning uh, members of bigger pockets, not employees. So we have an acquisitions guy who just pretty much runs acquisitions now and financial analysis uh, analysis. So that's Walker. We have investor relations, which is me and Mike. So Mike is a half assistant, half executive uh, investor relations. Mike does other things as well. Besides that, some bigger pockets related stuff. Ryan, who kind of oversees the entire operation, uh, everything from top to bottom. He's kind of probably what Jefferson, what you do, which is kind of overseeing just everything to make sure the ship is always, you know, moving. Yep. And then Brian, who is a uh, asset manager, who is a partner. So he's not employees. It's a, a partner. Um, he just is making sure everything's working right once we buy it. Uh, and then we brought in, actually, we brought in a full-time person, uh, mostly on commission-based to do in park and fill. And so we have Tristan Thomas, who was on the podcast a while back. Uh, we hired him just, to, his only job is to fill parks that we're buying. Because we're buying, just like you were, Jefferson, like buying them that need a lot of, or at least have, have room for infill. And yep. I know you guys did like the park we're buying from you. You guys did a lot of infill and now we're going to try to finish it up. And so we brought in Justin yep. to help with that. So I appreciate you leaving some meat on the bone for us. So thank you. <laughs> Jefferson, I've got a question about your analysis. How, how have you been able to avoid getting bogged down analyzing every part, every part that's on the market? Like you must have some quick sort of hard and fast criteria or a quick analysis that you can either you know, weed these things in or out before you spend however much time it takes you to do a deep dive analysis. How have you been able to, to combat that? Because we found that, that that was a bottleneck for us uh, early on and still can be where you just got way too much to, to analyze. So you've got to weed these things out quickly. How do you, how do, you do that? Yeah, so that's our, our financial model. It, it's not hugely sophisticated, but it, I, I put it together. And again, you're just putting in some of the basics, how many pads, what's the lot rent, how strong is the economy based on things like what's the average house price, in that metro area, that kind of thing. So that kicks out a number. You know, I, I can't say that that every single deal that that's been emailed in that that we've you know done that much on. Some of them, I'm sure, have just skipped by, and you know, we missed them. But you know, we we try and run those through our model, and then just prioritize things. We're definitely more interested in deals that come in from the folks that source deals for us, uh, and we have them already focused on healthier metros. So that 
right there, just knowing that whatever they find is, is, is coming from a healthy Metro, you know, it makes it more interesting. We'll have some quick discussion around pricing. Uh, we're happy to fire off an offer. If, if a seller's like, you know, Hey, just make me an offer. Great. That's the way we do it. it it's not a perfect process. And I'm sure as we continue to grow the fund and, and staff up, it'll be better. Still probably never perfect, but, uh, but it'll, yeah, but it's uh, fairly, tar- it sounds like it's fairly targeted and you've got some sort of hard stop criteria that has to be met before it even proceeds to the next step. Yeah. So you're not just doing the shotgun approach, looking at everything everywhere. You've got, you've got it fairly, fairly honed in as to what you want. Fairly. Yes. Yeah. And I think, I think there's a lesson that any investor, whether they're mobile home parks or whatever is like, there are probably criteria that you just Jefferson right now off the top of your head. Like, like internally you would just say, yeah, no way on that deal. Like, yeah, it's got a, it's got, you know, got a separate sewer lagoon, blah, blah, blah. You'd be like, no pass. Or, Hey, it's located in a population of 300 people live in the town and nobody else within a four hour drive. Yeah. So like, you just You've got those feel. criteria so you can screen them out. Yeah, you get a feel. Yeah, that, that um, helps. You, you can look at things yeah. and, and just kind of ask a couple of questions. And, you know, with 10 or 15 seconds, you can be 80% certain whether it's interesting yeah. or not, you know. Okay, yeah. Let me ask you, because it's very similar to every business that I see, right? Like me as a real estate broker, when somebody calls me and they start talking about wanting to buy a house or sell a house, I know you're a good client or you're not within 10 or 12 seconds of talking to you. Right. What questions for, are you asking? Yes. That's, <laughs> what, that's what I'm getting at. You just know. If they're saying things like, well, you know, I, I'll buy a house, but it has to be a really good deal. And I really want something with seller financing. And I'm hoping, you know, I can get it for 30% of what it's worth, but I don't want a lot of work. That's just a person that's going to <laughs> wear you to the ground, right? Versus you're like, if hey, I find I, that deal, I'm buying it myself. Yeah, everybody's <laughs> buying that house, right? Like, you are not getting that deal at 70 percent off. <laughs> That's exactly right. Versus, Hey, I'm moving to California in a month. I need to find a place to live. Right. That's I got a great a job very, lined up. I got savings. I can do yes. it down. Just find me I something. I got a wife and a little kid. We need to find a house. Like I right. know that is a, a good lead that I need to pour my time into. And prioritize. If you don't so find I mean, a house, I'm going to look bad in front of my wife. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah, I'll make you look yelling at me. Yes. Yes. Like we're not Brandon and Heather. We can't live in a Prius. And just <laughs> Brandon rolls down the window to stick his feet out of it. Cause he's eight feet tall. That the Prius is five feet long. Yeah. yeah can you, what do you look for when a deal crashes your desk and you were too Ryan, what are those things? That that's why I was using that example that stand out that you're like, Ooh, this looks good. I keyed in. Cause I just saw that. Uh, you know, is it a, a, a met, is it a Metro of a hundred thousand people and up that's healthy? Is it a park of a hundred spaces or more? Is it all city utilities? Uh, is okay. it at least 80% full with resident owned homes? Is it within five miles yeah. of a super Walmart? You know, this is really, yeah. really good. You know, so I, I rarely really get all, all of that, but if, I, if the deal's got four out of five things, you know, that's, that's interesting. Three out of five, mm-hmm. maybe, but four out of five. Yeah. Let's, that's really let's helpful fun. though. Cause that's what people are looking for. They're like, how do I yeah. put this matrix together to know what I should analyze to what I shouldn't? Yeah. 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 That's what our financial so model too. does as well. I would encourage everybody, whether you're again, big time investor, just starting on your first property, like define those criteria, just like Jefferson just did. What are those five things that you want in a property? Okay. You want to, you want a house hack in Denver. Great. What are you looking for? Well, I'm looking for either a house or a a duplex in these five neighborhoods. Okay, great. What do you want? You know, like how many bedrooms do you need? What, like get that criteria. And now uh, that accomplishes a couple things. One, it helps you narrow your focus on what you're searching for. But two, when you can get deliberate to other people, like, I mean, 
my criteria is almost identical to yours, Jefferson, very much like uh, we have the same kind of numbers. And for like a while, we were just my getting, podcast, bro. I know. It's just like I listen to your podcast. <laughs> Weird. Uh, you taught me everything I know. So it's like I, I, once like I've, I've had a team of interns, we have a team of interns or not even interns, like like the, the team of individuals who are finding deals for us. Same thing that you kind of have, like people are looking for deals in the beginning, they were just firing so much at us. And finally we were just like, no, we want these five things. We have to hit four out of five. I and mean, it was the same number we, we said, if it doesn't have four out of five, don't even bring it to me. Cause I don't want two out of five. And so by doing that, all of a sudden we started getting solid leads that came in. And again, if you're on your first house or duplex, single family, talking about an apartment, identify what those things are that you're looking for. Cause you probably have in your head, it's probably somewhere back in there that you, that you, everybody listening has what they want, but they haven't defined it on a piece of paper. Cause now you can give that to other people. And now other people are more focused on bringing you deals as well. And they're not going to waste your time. It's just, it's a win-win for everybody. Yeah. I think that's the single most impactful decision we made yeah. in our business is defining that correct. Yeah, defining we exactly. so much time, uh, inefficient use of time, uh, analyzing stuff that we had no business even looking at. Cause it, it was not anything we'd be interested in. So until we sat down and it was, alarmingly simple to do that once the kind of light clicked at, okay, we have these, these six or seven criteria, like Brandon said, very similar to yours, Jefferson, uh, probably blatantly stolen from you. Uh, (laughs) but yeah, now, now we can look at something and quickly within, you know, two minutes, we can say, no, this one's, this one's going in the, in the trash pile. We don't want to spend any more time on it all. Let's move on to something else that fits. So Yeah. yeah. Cool. Cool. All right. Well, guys, uh, before we move on to the next segment, I'm, I'm curious, where do you see yourself headed, Jefferson, like in the next few years? Like where, how big do you want to grow this thing? I mean, are you, are you like billionaire focused here or like where, where do you see yourself? <laughs> no, I don't think quite billionaire focused, but yeah, I want, I want to keep building uh, the business. I would envision uh, doing this for at least another decade and probably doing a fund sort of every 18 months or something like that. So, you know, that might be uh, six six funds over the next 10 years, something like that. I want to get better at hiring at systems, people, operations, that kind of thing. Maybe Mobile Home Park 3.0 will be hiring people to raise funds for me because <laughs> yeah. I'm still doing, I'm still at, at fundraising 1.0, so to speak, where, where I handle <laughs> most of the investor relations. You're already ahead of me if you've got somebody doing uh, investor <laughs> relations for you. But yeah, we'll, we'll, I, I want to make it m- more of a machine that the, the fundraising and then the, the, the property operations. So uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot of growth for me uh, still in, in both of those areas over the next decade. But I also spend cool, you know, a fair, fair amount of time with my family and my wife and I homeschool our kids and it's mostly her, but we're very family focused. So I'm, I'm not looking to you know, work 80 hours a week in, in the efforts of trying to become a billionaire. I'm well to do enough that, that there are other things that, that are important to me as, as well. Yeah, smart, smart man. All right, well, let's shift gears here and head over to the deal deep, deal dive. deep dive. All right, this is the part of the show where we dive deep into one of your particular deals, yep. Jefferson. Yep. So uh, do you got something in mind that we can pick apart? Uh, I do. We, we uh, let, Let's do the, uh, we'll call this, well, it is, it's the Cherry Woods deal, which was the first deal uh, of those syndication deals that uh, th- that we did in uh, Ottawa, Kansas. So. All right. Nice let's go through that thing. What First of all, well, I was going to ask what kind of property is it? It's a mobile home park, correct? <laughs> Shocker. You're talking to Jefferson. Shocker, yes. yes. <laughs> it's a mobile home park. <laughs> all right, yeah. David, next question. We're just freestyling this thing, aren't we? Yeah. Are we, are we, are we going down happen? the list? Okay. We're going down the list. 
Okay. You got this? You, well, you said earlier. Do we that have you were just process or not? Questions. <laughs> <laughs> we normally do, but I thought Brandon wanted to try something different when he said we're just going to throw things at you. But he must have meant throw the process at you. Okay, there I had to find go. this deal. Uh, this deal came to us from a broker at a major firm. Yes, that, that's how it came to us. We uh, we liked it. It uh, probably wasn't snapped up by other firms because it was a relatively small deal, 45 pads in a, in a smaller town. Ottawa, Kansas is not uh, Kansas city. It's uh, I think roughly a 30,000 person town. All right. Number three. Okay. Jefferson, how much was that property? Uh, it was a total of uh, 800,000 was the purchase price. And we got uh, 62, basically three fifths. I think that's 62 and a half percent seller carry uh, a note we're still paying on. Wow. So we had to come up with a relatively large down payment, uh, whatever the 30, 37 and a half percent down. But that also de-risked the deal for us a bit because the mortgage was uh, relatively low. All right. And so then on that note, how did you negotiate that? Like, were there any fancy negotiation strategies or anything, tips, stories that went with that? No, that one was relatively easy. Uh, the, the seller indicated he was at least open and maybe even preferred seller carry. So, uh, so that was fine. So we're still writing him a check every month. So it, it just worked out, worked out well. Uh, yeah. So, okay. Those, are the, those fun... are the best words to hear ever. That the yeah. seller prefers seller carry. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Almost as good as clear to close. Point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, how did you fund the portion that you didn't, the seller didn't carry? Yeah, the actual equity we had to come up with. So that was quite an interesting uh, process. There's a story there. So we thought we had one buy, uh, sorry, one investor lined up. He happened to be out of Wyoming. We we refer to him as Mr. Wyoming. And he had already been in real estate, although doing more like multi-million dollar fix and flips of, of fancy houses. But he, he had some real estate experience. We needed about 450,000 down. We wanted to have the, the what, what we needed plus some cushion. Anyway, so he asked a lot of great questions, then wanted to follow up with my partner. We all got on the phone with him. Then he wanted to do a follow-up meeting. You know, Then he went radio silent on us for a week or so. Then he came back with some more questions. Then he asked if he could do just half the deal. <laughs> Somewhere <laughs> along that part, that, that process a little too late. We had found him simply because, you know, I had been doing some blogging online. But anyway, so somewhere along that process, we, we've got about a total of about six or I think, I think it was about seven weeks to close. So he, after several weeks uh, of kind of stringing us along and cumulatively burning up, I don't know, probably a dozen hours or more with us on the phone, just sent us a one sentence email that said, I'm sorry, my wife won't let me do this deal. <laughs> oh man. Uh, we had already started uh, calling other investors though, not as soon as we should have, but, but we had already. So, you know, I had also sent an email to a guy, I uh, will call him Mr. Boston, a gentleman who had lived in a house uh, that I had lived in, a triplex in Boston, wasn't a roommate, but he owned one of the other units we had kept very loosely in touch by email over roughly 20 years. And I sent him an email. He, he knew what I was doing. He expressed interest, sent him an email, a presentation and said, hey, if you want to do this deal, you know, let me know. And, you know, I'll be happy to get on the phone with you. And he sent back a text and said, you know, I'm in. <laughs> and I sent him a, a text back like, okay, when do you want to talk about the deal this week so I can discuss it with you? And he texted back and said, Jefferson, what's your bank account? I'm wiring you $100,000 in the morning. <laughs> I said, wow. okay, great. <laughs> so, uh, and we did raise money also from approximately six other individuals. 
but it was just interesting in, in, in that very first deal we did, we went guardrail to guardrail. We had Mr. Wyoming, who just dragged things out and was kind of frankly amateurish and never invested. And we had Mr. Boston, who I spent, you know, 10 minutes with writing an email and a couple of follow-up texts, and he wires over $100,000. So to this day, I've never had another Mr. Wyoming, anybody that difficult to, to try and raise money from. And I've never had another Mr. Boston, anybody that, that easy to raise money from. But it's just interesting that on that very first deal for fundraising, we kind of went guardrail to, to guardrail. Wow. And is it, true that, is it true that you guys are raising money with Open Door Capital by having Ryan sell his hair to Locks for Love? <laughs> that's, yeah, that's we were supposed to talk around. about that. Dude. We were supposed to talk about that. <laughs> Very few things are off limits with me. That's, the okay? that's that's why Brandon's growing his beard out. He's trying to keep. That's up it. I'm gonna shave the beard. Like, yeah. Locks of yeah, beards of love. Yeah. It's gonna be uh, yeah for those. I also want to ask you, Jefferson, has anyone ever told you that your voice sounds like James Spader, Ultron from Age of Avengers <clears throat> or Age of Ultron? No, I, I've had people say I sort of have a radio <laughs> voice, but nobody's ever gotten that specific. Um, yeah. I will try yeah. and take that as a compliment. You might but, be able to make yeah, some money I doing voice that. work for Ultron in like the spinoffs. Okay. <laughs> Good to know. Thank you. Yeah. In case the whole mobile home Unrelated. park thing doesn't work out. In case there it doesn't you work go. out. Exactly. <laughs> Important to have alternate job skills. <laughs> uh, exit strategies. Great. So Jefferson, back to your park. What did you end up doing with it? Was it more of a conservative sort of long-term buy and hold or was it a more aggressive value add reposition and sell it? What would you do with it? Yeah, it was kind of kind of a nice in, in between. Uh, there, there was or has been, I think, cumulatively now over about five years, probably something around 30% uh, rent increase upside uh, spread out over about five years. That park also out of the 45 did have, I believe, 12 empty pads, uh, fully constructed, but obviously just empty. So we invested additional capital bringing in mobile homes uh, there, and that park is now virtually full. Anyway, so, so that, that was it. Uh, we got into the home business in, in a fairly significant way. We also used the 21st Mortgage Cash Program a fair, fair amount there to, to infill that property with brand new homes. Our uh, test ads had pulled well enough and the, the economics there were good enough. We, we felt and we, we've been proven correct that, that we could infill it with, with brand new houses and really make quite a stellar uh, community out of it. Cool. All right. Well, what, uh, what was the outcome then? What did you end up doing with it? Did you still own it today? Or is it like a part of your portfolio? Did you sell it? What was the outcome? Oh yeah. So it, it's part of our portfolio with, with the previous partnership that we're now selling. So I believe it's under contract okay. right now. Very cool. Okay. Well, There's some money on it. <laughs> Good. Hopefully so. Yeah. yeah. What lessons did you learn from this deal? Yeah. Just don't spend that much time with an investor that, that waffles. That's, that's the, the key thing. You know, you need to have more irons in, in, in the fire. Fundraising has gotten easier since then. It, it can be uh, precarious, frustrating uh, uh, when you're getting started, if you're dealing with just one investor or, or some small handful. So I guess my, my lesson learned and my advice there uh, for, uh, for folks getting into the business, whatever your deals are, uh, again, have more than one investor and uh, assuming your, you know, assuming your numbers are pretty good, it, it, it will get easier in time. So hang in there <laughs> and, and hopefully yeah. you'll get to the fund level uh, uh, fundraising if that's what you choose to do, uh, you know, within a couple of years. Awesome, man. Very cool. All right. Well, with that, I'm going to move on to the last segment of the show. We're going to bypass the normal fire round because it's been a long show and go right into the world famous 
Famous Four. This is the Famous Four, the part of the show where we ask the same four questions to every guest every week, and uh, we're going to ask Jefferson. But before we do, let's hear from Jay Scott to see what's going on this week over on the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. Hey there, Brandon and Bigger Pockets Real Estate Podcast listeners. This is Jay Scott, your co-host for the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. And this week on the Business Podcast, we have lifestyle entrepreneur Yaro Stark with us. Yaro tells us all about how over the past two decades he has built multiple businesses with multiple streams of income to generate passive income, which allows him to work from anywhere in the world and do what he wants when he wants. So if you're looking to build your lifestyle business, check out this episode of the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. Now, back to your famous four. All right, big thanks to Jay Scott and Carol, of course, for running the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. It's an awesome show. Check it out. And make sure you guys are leaving them ratings and reviews. All right. With the, hey, speaking of ratings and reviews, you know what I saw you guys the other day? I saw that Bigger Pockets on terms of reviews and ratings has officially surpassed Tim Ferriss's podcast on iTunes and number of reviews. So thank you to everybody for leaving reviews and ratings on uh, on iTunes. Keep doing it. I still got Dave Ramsey to uh, overtake, but uh, you know, thank you to everyone. So with that, let's get to today's famous for question number one, Jefferson. And you may have answered this last time. Maybe it's changed. Maybe it's not. Favorite real estate related book. Do you have one? Well, now it's probably uh, Sam Zell's "Am I Being Too Subtle." It uh, covers his life. It covers when he was in college and started managing a uh, a college quadplex that like his roommate's dad owned or something. So uh, I think it does a very good job of, of stepping through at least how he got started managing a property, not even owning it, and then worked his way up into uh, where he is now, owning mobile home parks and office and apartment and an Exeter cable manufacturing for computers and all kinds of things. Anyway, so am I being too subtle by Sam Zell? Cool. The next question is the same question we ask everybody as our second question. What is your favorite (laughs) business book? Oh, general business? Probably Snowball. That's a particularly good biography on Warren Buffett. Uh, Again, covers Mm. uh, his, his business career, but also, frankly, some of the sacrifices that uh, business success meant for him and for his family. Uh, I think it's a fairly balanced uh, perspective, again, not only just on his business and how he invests, but but also what uh, what sort of a dad he was and uh, uh, just gives a, a very good per- overall perspective on, on Warren Buffett. Awesome. He's one of those people that's just very intriguing. Everybody likes Warren Buffett. You'll never find a person that says, I hate Warren Buffett. (laughs) It's like, I hate Christmas. It doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Okay. Uh, What are some of your hobbies? Ryan hates hates Christmas. That's why I looked at Ryan. Not a fan. He did did not have a tree. He did not have a tree. He did not give, he did. His wife got me a present. Well, us a present, but that's why he hates it. (laughs) That's why he hates it. Yeah. I still like Warren Buffett though. Okay. Great. <laughs> okay. Okay. Great. I think that further proves your point. I hate Christmas. I still like Warren Buffett. <laughs> anyway, keep going, David. What are your hobbies? My hobbies? Oh gosh. You know, I don't have too many, you know, I, I ski a, a very little bit. Uh, I've got three little kids, five, five and under. So I may, maybe those are my hobbies now, just really sp- spending a lot of time with my kids and taking them to the park and traveling a bit outside of, of our home hometown here. Yeah. And, and I think I alluded earlier, we actually homeschool the kids that takes time. So yeah, I'm really pretty, pretty family focused right now. So we'll, we'll say that's my hobby. <laughs> nice. All right. 
All right. Have you ever heard that book, uh, Call of the Wild and Free? It's a homeschooling book. I just got it. It's pretty good. Uh, I'm not, I'm not sure I have. Yeah. I'll look yeah, it no, up. No, it's pretty I'll good. Mention it to my wife. Yeah, it's called, yeah, have a read. It's called the call of the, I think it's called call of the wild and free, but anyway, okay. I, I'm liking it. Cool. So I'll probably homeschool Rosie someday. My last question, Jefferson, what do you think separates successful real estate investors from all those who give up, fail, or never get started? I think a big thing is focus. Uh, I see a lot of people, you know, that'll e- email me or even talk to me on the phone or they, I'm seeing them posting online and they get like totally excited about mobile home parks. And then a couple of months later, they're like, Oh yeah, but you know, I found a great little fix and flip deal. So I'm, mm-hmm. I've got this little three bedroom in Des Moines and I'm fixing it up and blah, blah, blah. You know, it takes focus, uh, I think to do, to do well, whatever you want to do in life. Again, I've chosen to focus on this niche. Other people just kill it in raw land or self storage or what have you. But uh, I just think, uh, the ability to really focus, keep your standards, build your deal flow, and then only do deals that meet your focus, uh, is what leads to success. And and a lack of that uh, leads to uh, a failure or at least mediocre results. I want everybody to go and rewind the last 30 seconds and listen to that again. Cause that is some of the best advice ever given on the podcast <laughs> ever. Like that's like, that's it. Like so good. Yeah. Yeah. So good, man. Well, thank, thank you. you very much. This has been fantastic. David, you want to take us out and do your last question? Yes. A lot of us have liked what we've heard here and think it was so good. So if we want to find out more, Jefferson, where can we find out more about you? Yeah. So first off, hit, hit my website. Uh, it's parkavenuepartners.com. You can literally just just contact me there. Also, I would say, again, I mentioned uh, the podcast that I've started for, for the mobile home park business. We also produce an industry calendar of events. And we uh, I run the largest mobile home park group on LinkedIn. And uh, people can find all of that right at mobilehomeparkinvestors.com. That's kind of all the social networking stuff. And again, the, the main website, parkavenuepartners.com. Very cool. Well, thanks, man. It's been good. Yeah. It's been awesome. I appreciate all the uh, advice and mentorship over the years. Yeah, it's yeah. been awesome. Thank cool. you. Thank awesome. you. Ryan, any closing thoughts here? No, just thanks for letting me hang out, guys. I appreciate it. It was yeah. fun. It's been fun. Your All right, hair well. does look terrific. <laughs> Appreciate that, David. Thank you. I'll sell you some. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd love to help you guys raise some money. That's exactly what I want to do. <laughs> All right. This is David Green for Ryan, the hairpiece Murdoch, and Brandon, Captain Mobile Home Park Turner, signing off. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom and the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and bam, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. 
This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.